0: Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast, produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. We engage, we explore, we ask questions. I'm Elizabeth Howard, host of the Short Fuse podcast. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Halim Flowers. Halim was socially distanced from society for 22 years from 1997, and at the age of 16 years old, he was incarcerated in an adult prison after being arrested, receiving two life sentences while claiming his innocence. He was released in 2019 under a new juvenile resentencing law. Since then, He has received fellowships from Halcyon Art Lab and Echoing Green. His art has been featured in exhibitions throughout the country, including MoMA PS1. He has a studio in New York, lives in a new home with his wife, Patrice McKinney, and their beautiful young daughter. During the month of November, his exhibition, entitled It Takes a Village and Other Lessons Super Predators Teach Us, was on view at the National Arts Club in New York. It was sponsored by his gallery, DTR Modern. Colleen, your exuberant exhibition of paintings and collage has just closed at the National Arts Club. But Before we talk about your work, perhaps you can talk about when you started painting. You're often described as an autodidact, that is self-taught. I started
1: painting during the quarantine in March uh, 2020. You did not do any painting when you were in prison. No, I've never done any painting, never in my life, before doing prison or drawing or sketching. And so what inspired you to start? Listening to Jay-Z when I was in prison, and he he started rapping about uh, Basquiat, uh-huh. and I didn't know who Basquiat was. We don't have access to to the internet or anything like that in, in, in prison, so with the Wall Street Journal, they ran an article about Basquiat and I had, a, you know, I had a chance to see him, not even his work to see him. But I was amazed that it was a, a quote-unquote Black person who was receiving praise for his painting. So that made me to start desiring to go to the museums and the galleries once I was released and start studying visual art. If people want to see your art,
0: you can find it on your website and also on the DTR Modern site, your gallery.
1: I don't really, like, upload my recent works to my website. I'm not really good at that. So I would say, like, DTR Modern has most of my works. They do a better job than me.
0: The strong images often portray you when you were incarcerated. They include Mm -hmm. words and phrases. Let me read a few that I copied down when I visited the National Arts Club. Beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. For when you gaze long into the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. A Nietzsche quote.
1: Right. And I think I miss Bill Nietzsche. And it wasn't on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I believe I read that quote in a biography of uh, uh, Ernesto Che Guevara. Uh-huh. And, and it always just stood out to me because, you know, Society had painted me out to be like this monster, this minister society. Like I was incorrigible and unfit to be around humanity. So I mean, it just reminded me about how the elders in the village, like I said, it takes a village to raise a child. And the elders in the village, they painted this picture of me. To me, they became more monstrous than me. And in, in, in when I was, when I, as I was learning that a whole economic system was being created out of imprisoning children. It just showed that how, when you pursue the the super predator, how you can become predatory, even commercially, and how you just cage children. And I find it to be sad. Another
0: phrase, do not get angry at your neighbor for every injury, and do not resort to acts of insolence. That was in one of your paintings.
1: I'll have to see the pain to remember where I got that from but for me, I'm, a, I'm what people would describe as a nerd, a geek. I got this, this vast library of records and, and books. And for me, I'm always studying. I stayed up to like three in the morning last night studying uh, fashion and design because that's my next venture for 2022. So anything that I study that happened, it could be Bible, it could be Buddhism, it can be economics, it can be cryptocurrency. Anything that I happen to be studying at the moment, it pops up in my paintings because I don't paint from a preconceived sketch or anything like that, I just paint how I feel with no respect for color theory or, or iconography. It's a spiritual expression for me and it's, it's liberating. And I think that's why it's resonated with people so so well. It's not the aesthetic of, of the painting, but I think people can see it's, it's an adult who's not afraid to, to embrace his imagination, his childhood. Because I believe like we, we correlate imagination with being a child and in adulting mistake maturity with the suffocation of imagination and childlike wonder for the world. I'm just going to
0: read one more. Arrogance is hateful to the Lord and to mortals and injustice is outrageous to both. Sovereignty passes from nation to nation on account of injustice and insolence and wealth. How can dust and ashes be
1: proud? Wow, these are some amazing quotes that
0: I had my <laughs> notebook and I watched yeah. I spent quite a bit of time. It, your I love your work. <laughs>
1: you know that. So for me, I think I got that quote from a series of videos on YouTube that talks about mass psychosis mm-hmm. and Carl Jung and the psychoanalysis, and this just it just talks about how mankind, humanity, the masses can be persuaded or what they would say brainwashed into creating this uh, enemy. As you can see in our society, one period it may be the Nazis and then after that it's the Koreans and all of the negative derogatory terms that come with that and then it can be like the Islamic terrorists and predating the Vietnamese before that. So it's just like how instead of Mass media and influencers using their their influence to guide the people towards loving themselves and others it's, it's become this this uh this profiteering of divisiveness and and devoid of love which people identify with as hatred and we can even see this in the in the current pandemic, something that should be bringing us all together, something that should be making us grateful for every breath we take we created this this, uh, vitriol division between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And it's just another creative way after the 2020 election to perpetuate a lack of love for ourselves and one another.
0: You were labeled as a super predator. You use this Mm -hmm. phrase a lot in your art. But this is a label behind a theory in criminology that became popular in the 1990s in the United States Mm -hmm. when a man named John... Lillio, the criminologist and political scientist, posited that there were some impulsive juvenile criminals who were willing to commit violent crimes without remorse. And judges and courts implemented tough-on-crime legislation for juvenile offenders, including life sentences without parole. You were initially given two life sentences. But in fact, at that time, juvenile violence declined. And this theory has been completely disproven. How did it feel to be described and labeled as a super predator?
1: I remember one time I had used the word nigger in, in, in the car with my parents. I think I maybe was like six or seven. And they like, what are you saying? I said it again. And I didn't feel any you know, remorse for saying I was listening to it in rap music at that time. And my parents made me go home and watch um, Alex Helly. Film, with a film of Alex Haley book, uh, Roots. And from that point on, I remember like seeing Mississippi burning and just a series of, that's, what, that's when my first realization came that I was black, right? And, and all of the negative um, prejudgments that comes with that racial stereotype. So for me being a super predator, for me personally, it just was like another way of calling me a nigga. And I knew that I'm so thankful that I had parents and a community and a family who taught me the value of my humanity and that I had the audacity, even in the midst of being a child and being labeled a super predator and being placed in the cage and being told that you would spend the rest of your life there, that I had enough audacity to just still see the value in myself in spite of the social constructs that had been Place the company before even before I was born, so I never really—I mean, it didn't really mean anything to me, and that's why I've taken that that title and, and used it in my branding because I'm I'm showing that when you're creative and when you love yourself, you can take the hate that they give and you can make it you can make it something new. So I rebranded the Super Predator label as one who preys upon hate and loves unconditionally. I'm like a superhero now. What was it like being 16 years old,
0: a young teenager, and being put in an adult prison?
1: When you grew up in my community of Washington D.C. at that time, that's that's walking distance from the Capitol. During the cracker, you had this this introduction into our communities of, of gun violence. It became Washington, D.C. had the highest murder rate per capita of any city in, in America, and it had the highest incarceration rate of any city in the world, right? So fatality and, and, and imprisonment, is, it probably became as normal as LSATs or, or you know, pre-SATs to, to someone from your community. It, it wasn't like it was some unusual I knew a lot of people who had been murdered under the age of 18 and also who had been charged as adults and and, and given life sentences. So for me, it definitely was devastating. I don't want to downplay that. Um, It was devastating. It was depressing, but it wasn't unusual. And for me, uh, going back to my parents' upbringing, I just didn't accept it. Even though it was depressing and devastating, I, I, I always felt in my core that I would be great. And, and I felt like that it would just take time to get out of the, the entanglements that I had put myself in with my me choosing to uh, leave the academic trajectory that I was on, taking my pre-SATs and scoring high at the age of 11 and taking uh, summer classes at Howard University when I was 11 and then deciding to sell drugs when I was 12 and put myself in a position to be falsely accused of a crime and to be Deemed in the eyes of society as being worthy of being cast away, so it was some sense of accountability that had to come with that, with the decisions that I had made with my my life. But I always knew that I could come up out of it. But it was it was it was it was devastating, you know. It was devastating. It was it hit it hurts me worse now than it did back then because back then I just had to fight it, fight fight to get out. But now that I'm older and I'm adult and I have a child, I just couldn't imagine. My teenage child going through that, you know, it it, it would would crush me as an adult. And it hurts me as an adult to see children still go through that today.
0: In February 2016, on the day of his 69th birthday, Albert Woodfox walked, walked free from Angola Prison, Louisiana's notorious state penitentiary and the largest maximum security prison in the United States. He had 44 years on the inside, most in solitary confinement in a six by nine foot concrete cell for a life sentence for a murder that he didn't commit. He's probably America's longest serving solitary confinement prisoner. In his book, Solitary, My Story of Transformation and Hope, he writes that this had tested his mental fortitude to the limit and beyond and made search into reserves of compassion and resilience he never knew he had forcing him to learn how to live with the absence of human touch he also writes about the importance of routine in prison since every day is the same you learn the routine you learn the culture you learn to play between the lines how do you get through the years how do you, how do you think about time for me how I think
1: me being a creative and going to prison as a child, when you're a child and you still, like, hold on to your imagination, it's different than somebody who may not be creative. So Mm. when I would go in solitary confinement, I would, like, write rap songs and poems and short stories and plays and movie scripts. I was very creative on formulating, like, workout plans and. Specific times I would listen to NPR and then BBC at night, you know, AM radio. So I just think like being a creative and being and having an imagination that you embrace, the loss of human contact um, can be compensated for through creating it from within. Not to say that it compensates for it fully, but it's enough to hold you until you can get back in touch with humanity. So. For me, as a creative person, you know, I would just like design clothes and cars and planes. And one thing that was helpful to me also was literature. And I would get lost in time, right? In dealing with time in the sense of someone like me who studies physics on a low, on a low, low level, where Albert Einstein with his theory of general relativity, right? We relate to time and space based upon where we are at. But I think like when you're a creative, imaginary, imaginary, visionary type of person, you dictate your space internally and you don't allow your your space relativity to be dictated by external things outside of your forces. So when you can dictate your space internally and not get lost in in the confinement of prison, you can get lost. As people say, you can get lost in time. Right, So I was one of those individuals who, even though I was like reading the papers and the magazines and watching the news and standing abreast of current events, but through my creative world, the the, the part of me that published 11 books and had like 20 unpublished books and you know hundreds of short stories and thousands of poems and fashion sketches and stuff like that, I was getting lost in time. and, and but I knew that what I was doing, would be very instrumental once I got out because I, I saw that society was moving towards a carbon copy brand of living where people was just like having social media in uh, television just taking over their creativity and they was just becoming consumers in the idea of uh, pattern so I knew that I had some original ideas that can be appreciated I just never thought that it would be in painting first right I was getting lost in time, but everybody relates to suffering different. Viktor Frankl's book, Man Surf for Me, it was a great a source of inspiration for me to 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 not be caught up in my immediate environment when he was in the, in the Holocaust camps. He would imagine himself giving lectures all over the world about his experience. So, you know, I kind of like picked up that practice. And Napoleon Hill, he mentioned in Think and Grow Rich about forming a mastermind group you know, with people that you admire. So I would have like this imaginary board of directors, you know, from people like Harriet Tubman to Andrew Carnegie. And and they was just, we would just have meetings and, and map out my future. How was I going to conduct myself in the present moment that would, that would be a harbinger to where I stand today? So when are some of your books going to be published? I mean, I, I read what you've written you wrote like eleven books when you're in prison. Yeah, I never published any of my fiction literature. I just published my poetry, and financial literacy, self-help literature, and cognitive therapy books. But all of like my short stories and plays and stuff like that, I haven't released them yet. I'm a, a very strong advocate of, of this crypto currency metaverse NFT space. So now I'm thinking about I'm just releasing comics, like graphic comics through NFTs. So, I'm not in the, like in a rush to come out with it right now. I'm just like focused on fashion and design, but who knows if you'd have asked me eighteen months ago I, I would have never thought I would be a painter when I met you at the in the space in New York City before the quarantine. I wasn't painting I was doing spoken word and written poetry. so who knows I may meet someone while I'm in Miami at Ar Basel who hears my story I'm like I heard you got these you know short stories and I'm like, you know, uh, a Netflix producer. we looking for some some good stories, and we might send them some stories, and end up being a writer for a show. So I'm just going with the flow of uh, of the universe right now, where it takes me. But right now, intentionally, I'm on fashion and design. Take this hammer and carry it to
2: the captain. Take this hammer and care to the captain. Take this hammer, care to the captain. Tell him I've gone. Tell him I've gone. If he asks you tell him i run If he asks you tell him run If he asks you tell him run Tell him I's gone. gone. Tell him I's gone. Take this hammer and care to the captain. Take this hammer and care to the captain. Take this hammer and care to the captain. Tell him I've gone. Tell him I've gone.
0: I occasionally, when I was thinking about talking to you today, I occasionally reread James Baldwin's If Beale Street Could Talk um you know which mm-hmm. so poignantly describes a, a young man who's wrongly accused of rape and many mm-hmm. people believe that Baldwin was inspired by the arrest of Angela Davis and the case against Tony Maynard a man he'd known as a child growing up in Harlem and Maynard was arrested for allegedly fatally shooting a 21 year old white marine sergeant with a sawed off shotgun but actually Maynard says he was with his wife's family at the time, Baldwin so beautifully described love and family and, and, and left us at the end of the story, not in the, the recent movie that was made where he goes to prison, but literally we, we leave him, say, in Rikers Island or somewhere mm-hmm. with, without knowing exactly what's going to happen, but knowing that he probably will end up going to prison.
1: Yeah, James Baldwin is my favorite writer you know, of all time. A lot of my inspiration comes from, I call him my four J's, John <laughs> Coltrane, Jay-Z, James Baldwin, John Michelle Basquiat. So when I first came home, I tried to watch if Bell Street could talk, and I couldn't even make it through the film, the, the scene where the guy was talking about what he went through in prison. At that point right there, I just started crying. Right. And I was like, wow. And I just cut it off. I never went back and finished it. And maybe it was too soon for me. Like I tried to watch it like within a week of coming home. You know, I just like I said, when I was in there, I kind of like shut off the tear ducts and the ability to feel. Because if you open yourself up to it, you'll cry all the time every day. It's just, it's just such an inhumane way of living for me. Right. So. Now that I'm out, it's hard for me to watch like prison stuff. It's just like when I went to scene scene when I'm on the board of directors of Frederick Douglass Project for Justice, and we went to scene scene with the NBC producer Dan Sleppian and and I went back in there. It's just like, wow, it's just it was so it was so surreal, you know, to be back in prison. It's just uh, hopefully I can do some 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 work with. With my writings and my paintings, and to get people to be a little more assertive about that humanity that we allow to happen, we had such a united front against terrorism after September 11th, and I think we should have that even more with incarceration. This the way it's done in America, because it's a form of terrorism to to our own citizens. And even if some people do commit heinous crimes, guilt or innocence. It should not be a prerequisite to in- inhumane, proven unusual treatment.
0: When I listen to some of the news about what goes on, it, you know, what's going on, we hear it so much in New York now about Rikers Island. It it just I it's hard for me to fathom that in this country we have people that aren't being fed and their medical needs aren't being met. These are basic human rights. And the Mandela role at the UN anything mm-hmm. over 15 days in solitary confinement you know is torture and and you're advocating i mean you're advocating mm-hmm. in addition to your art and your writing for prison reform for economic literacy and for entrepreneurship
1: not reform i'm not I'm for I'm for abolishment not not reform i'm not for prison reform how is
0: this going to work i mean do you do you feel that the art is helping people Understand this? Are are you encouraging them to to fight as if we're in the middle of a revolution? I saw.
1: I began as a child, where the liberals were calling us super predators, right? Okay. And then through Brian Stevenson's book, Michelle Alexander's, you know, Just Mercy. The new Jim Crow, the documentary Thirteenth. I saw how the literature and arts were exposing this uh, travesty in American culture that was hidden to those who were immune from it through the privilege of uh, class first, and then I can say maybe race. But, you know, money preventing them from getting in prison because they were raping young ladies on college campuses where sexual assaults are rampant, but, but they were white, frat, or maybe star athletes, college athletes. They, they had some level of immunity, right? Even if they were black athletes, just their potential to be in, to make money for the high class economically, um, it, it gave them a sense of immunity from accountability. So I kind of like watch how documentaries, literature, and the arts was shifting public opinion, even to the point of embracing signs that led to me getting out under the juvenile life reform, as they would say, or laws that took place as a, as a result of some U.S. Supreme Court decisions. I'm an I'm optimist person. I'm very imaginative. I'm one of them red human beings that believe that I can do anything, that all things are possible, and i'm not encouraging people to fight i don't think it's like a revolution cuz like that word fight i have to be careful when i use that word cuz as a black person i could be looked at as being militant and a nationalist or something so i'm saying i'm encouraging people to love right and and it's an evolution right it's not a revolution it's an evolution to where as though we're evolving from the founding members of this the men Who had little input from women or any other men who didn't look like them. They founded this nation upon a set of principles and it has to evolve to be more inclusive of ideas and sentiments of other than Anglo-Saxon white men. And it's not to critique them in a negative and a hateful way. It's just to look at the present moment to always be humble and open-minded that the biggest room in the world is the room for improvement. And therefore, you know, to use my imagination and my creativity and my platform to evolve the people towards love to where love is not looked at as something weak in in the criminal legal system or weak in the military industrial complex or weak in the financial system that's predatory upon um, poor people, but just to evolve humanity to a place, myself first and foremost, to a place where love is not looked at as something that has no utility in these different economic, social, political spectrums that impact the lives of humanity and our planet. You know, we're losing our planet. As James Baldwin said, artists are here to just
0: serve the peace. There's a lot going on, it seems, in the art world. I think you were also at the pencil as the key drawings by incarcerated mm-hmm. artists at the Drawing Center. Mm-hmm. we had met before them, but then, which was a wonderful exhibit. And then last year, Nicole Fleetwood's exhibit, MoMA PS1, Marking Time, Art in the Age of Mass Incarceration. And I, I thought that was the catalog. I, I think everyone should look at the catalog that goes with that exhibition. And I, I've noticed on the website that there is still programming going on around that. But that. Exhibition had not only art made by people in prison, but also by non-incarcerated artists who were concerned with state repression, erasure, and imprisonment. Mm-hmm.
1: You had a piece in that show, didn't you? Just before I was painting this when I was like writing poetry on top of uh, certain iconography and imagery. So I had to, what I was calling at that time, photo poetry pieces. One was a series of uh, like, one was like poetry written on a Wall Street Journal article about famous black artists. I can't think, but another one was on a, the same article was about uh, Hank Willis Thomas, a picture of me on the cover of the Washington City paper. And I like wrote a poem on there, one of my poems on there and some other commentary. So that was like my, my first Visual art exhibit just happened to be at the moment, PS1. <laughs> Even, yeah. <laughs> That's so
0: great. Holly, where are we? A few weeks ago, five men were released from Louisiana mm-hmm. State, Angola, Louisiana State Prison. One of them had been in prison and exonerated. One of them had been there for 57 years. And mm-hmm. when he was accused of a murder as a black person, he was told he was innocent, but he was told to plead guilty because they said he was probably would face the electric chair and the Jim Crow South. But mm-hmm. if he pleaded guilty, maybe he'd get 10 years. That's what he was told. So he did. And of course, that they just never paid attention to that. So he spent 54 years and they were released as part of the Louisiana Parole Project. And then, then we have the exoneration of the two men who killed. Malcolm X. And that, of course, was also just a hastily called trial, hastily arrested and tried on on what was shaky evidence. And then kind of at the same time that this has happened in Georgia, we have a jury made up of 11 white people and one black person who did convict three white men in the death of Ahmed Aubrey, which was so obvious. Is there some shift a little bit? Is there recognition of some of the need for change? Do you you see something happening?
1: Um, No. Though people, we are a nation of like almost 400 million people. People's opinions and attitudes are constantly, I believe, evolving towards love on these issues. Some are not. And that's just a dichotomy of life. I don't. I believe that life, in its most atomic form, it's a dichotomy of you know protons and and electrons as positive and negative force. I think the harm happens when people who advocate for reform or abolishment seek vindication in the same system that they're seeking to reform or abolish. So when Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted, I was surprised to see that people were upset who are advocating for abolishment or reform. And I was surprised to see like one friend of mine, she posted that we had got a victory when the three men were convicted for uh, killing the the guy that was jogging, uh, Ahmed Albert. And I asked her, I said, what did we win? What did we win? And she said, you're right. We we didn't win anything. So me, I just don't, I'm not reactionary. I'm I'm solid in my stance. I want to abolish um, the way we treat ourselves and others. When someone commits an offense or harms another individual, I'm more into this new thing that they call restorative justice, which is not really new. It's a new title, and I think we need to lower our arrogance, as I said in one of the paintings uh, that you referenced before, and be humble and open-minded that though we may be the best in the world with gross domestic product and, and technology and innovation, and we may be the worst when it comes to how to resolve conflict in the system that we call justice. I think we need to open our, our souls up to how other nations have historically and contemporarily Deal with these matters to where though they don't have a, a a profiteering industry of incarcerating millions of people. You know, we're behind China; they have billions of people. We're at the top of the list. I think we I think
0: we incarcerate more people than any other country in the world. Right,
1: but I think the harm comes when we cry out for people to be convicted and punished in the same system that we say that we're against. Right. Because it's a subtle way of accepting it when we think that it benefits us, right? And I believe treating people inhumanely. I'm not saying that Cal Rittenhouse or the other three guys shouldn't receive some form of accountability for what they've done. I don't believe it's going to benefit us as a whole, as a nation, as a humanity, through putting them in prison in the way that the prisons exist today.
0: Yes, I... Uh, agree you like so many others i mean um are released out of prison
1: without anger or resentment i mean you're i have anger and resentment i'm human i don't just because i you know advocate for love i'm not a robot mm-hmm. i have anger i felt resentment when kyle renhouse was was acquitted mm-hmm. And I'm someone that didn't want him to be convicted, but I felt I felt the level of anger and, and resentment that he received so much love and support um, for him to not to be swallowed up in the system. And I didn't receive that and, and, and from my own, what we would say, my own people. When we look at things from this racial perspective, um, I might have a black judge, a black lawyer, a black prosecutor. Of, of eleven or ten black jurors, and I didn't receive the same grace or just mercy. And you know, so in in the way that the black correctional, you know, administration and staff treated me and those similarly situated as myself, as children was was horrendous. So I did feel a certain level of anger and resentment to see the grace that he was extending, though I wanted him to receive that grace. I just felt like it should should have been extended to me and similar situated people as myself, because as we see today, I had something to offer society. I didn't have to <laughs> sit in a cell for twenty two years to you know to offer my ideas. So I hope that we can take this example from Kyle Rittenhouse and stop like the book that I forgot the guy name, but it one of Pulitzer Prize, uh, locking up our own. Hmm. A, a book that a guy wrote about blacks in DC government and corrections and um lawyers, you know, that just locked up their own. And um, it's a great book and it's nationally recognized. I encourage people to read it that's have interest in this thing we call criminal justice.
0: You often say, and you said this to me when I first met you. Love is the antibody, or love is the revolution. How are we going to spread this vaccine across the globe? What can we do?
1: I think that the most evolutionary, or some people want to hold on to revolutionary, thing that we can do is to love ourselves. Like, when you genuinely love yourself, when you exit the world, your attitude, your energy, your frequencies, your vibrations are just more peaceful and pleasant. Your probability of seeking to harm anyone is lesser because you you feel good. Mm-hmm. You're not even thinking about conflict. or You know, you're like, oh, I don't, you don't even want conflict. But when you look in the mirror and you're like, oh, my hair is not blonde or my nose is too big or my teeth are crooked or... I can't afford this brand or, you know, we are just not in the best uh, situation to, to be beneficial to, to yourself or others. So I believe, like, you know, this vaccine, this vaccination has to be uh, a love for yourself. And then once you can love yourself, then you can begin to remove this, these social constructs of race, class, gender, uh, creed, sexuality, age, disability, and you can start to see the interconnectedness between yourself and other sentient beings and other insentient beings, right? And this is just like levels to it, but you have to first love yourself to begin to see how we're all interconnected. And like that, people can't see that from this viruses, how yeah. through breathing yeah. and through touch, how interconnected we are. Right, and I just think we just need subtle reminders. So, um, so like Dr. King said in his letter from Birmingham Jail, those who have been propagating unloving intentions have been more forceful in pushing their agenda than those who are pushing the love movement. So we have to be creative and assertive, and not allow the unloving entities. To out, you know, to outdo us in, in the work of, of vaccinating the people. So,
0: what do you have another art exhibition planned, or is there
1: what? When are we going to see your fashion things next year? Hopefully, I plan on doing a, like a, a limited edition merch drop
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the beginning of the spring, twenty twenty two. But only thing that I have planned outside of my dealer is the Earn Martin Design Store and doing something with a a nonprofit art gallery in London called the Bomb Factory. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we can get this done in in the spring when the weather, spring or summer, when the weather gets better. Hopefully I could travel over there if my felony status doesn't prevent me. For me now, just like as an artist, I'm in in a great space. Because I don't have to worry about money. Like growing up being poor, a lot of the crimes that I committed selling drugs and stuff is about money. And when you, when you, I've been blessed to make a lot of money. And now I can just create for the sake of creating, don't have to worry about the pressure of not being able to sustain my basic livelihood. For the first time in my life, I guess I'm moved up on that Maslow's pyramid. And and it, it, it affords me the opportunity to be able to to use my creativity in, in the interest of other than just commercial gain. So I'm looking forward to just seeing, um, you know, what type of impact I can have on the world from the economic cloud pressure of poverty floating above me.
0: I always love talking to you, Halim. You're such an inspiration and love visiting your studio. So I hope everyone can really, I guess the best way to follow where you are and what you're doing is through DTR, Modern.
1: Yeah, or my Instagram, my Instagram is my name, Pauline Flowers. Also in 2022, we're releasing a book with Scala Publishing, an art publishing company out out of Britain and New York. And we're also doing the 25th anniversary to the Emmy Award-winning documentary, *Thug Life in D.C., Mm -hmm. that featured me as a 16-year-old incarcerated kid that will be released next year and be aired through HBO. I think the title is Super Predator, the Superhero.
0: (laughs) I look forward to, I hope to see you in New York when you're here next.
1: Yeah, I'm supposed to be doing some collaboration with some designers, so uh, I'm going to give me a place in Soho well, it's
0: lovely to be in conversation with you, Helene. Thank you so much.
1: You too. All right. Have a blessed day. <laughs> you too. Bye.
0: If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at you can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions. Wait, what is
1: that?